I'm Jay Matthews, and this is AD Update. We're back for another episode, and I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, Scott, why don't you say something like official into the mic that you might do on a Friday night, and then I'll, I'll say your name. So why don't you try that? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the podcast today with Coach Jay Matthews. <laughs> And so that voice has quickly become uh, very well known at our Friday night game. So we're with the new voice of the Lions, uh, comes uh, in a legacy of great ones previous to him, but he's carrying that mantle well, Scott Kellner. Scott, thanks for spending some time with me this morning. Well, Coach, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the time. So you're like one of these always interesting godsends, you know, uh, divine appointments, uh, because we had not known each other at all, and then we find out the similar circles we run in. Uh, But you just kind of – we kind of ran into each other out of the blue, and this whole thing happened. So I I feel like that's kind of neat. Talk talk to us a little bit about how this all kind of came about. Well, first of all, my whole life is that way. Um, I'm just a – I'm a continual project of God, but God has done these godsends of putting people in my life um, since I was a youngster. And so, yeah, it's it's not a surprise that you say that. But, uh, yeah, what you're referring to is we have a a couple, I guess, uh, prominent uh, college coaches that we know in common, Uh, one of those being Coach Woody McCorvey at Clemson, who was with me at Alabama. Uh, Coach Dabo Sweeney, who was both a player and on staff uh, with me at Alabama, Lemansky Hall, yeah. who's at uh, Clemson now with Lemansky, Lemansky, Mickey Kahn, several others. But uh, as I grew up in a very small town in southeast Alabama, uh, a little town called Elba, uh, if anybody's heard of it, it's uh, about 15 miles uh, away from Enterprise. And... Uh, I grew. My dad was uh, an oil man. He worked on the uh, oil rigs and was gone a week, home a week. Mm-hmm. So I had a male figure only at home half the time. And uh, my mother was an insurance agent, but my grandfather was a catfish farmer and a truck driver. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of my time working on a catfish farm and helping him and bush hogging and those kinds of things. And so when I leave Elba and show up in Tuscaloosa to start college. Uh, to say it was a culture shock uh, would be a huge understatement. And so I found myself very quickly being a very small fish in a very uh, big pond. Big catfish pond. Oh, a big catfish <laughs> pond. I like that play on words. But I kept trying to find my place, and I ended up getting a job um, as a sports photographer at the local CBS station. And what that did is put me at football practice every day. Yeah. Well, in doing that, every single day – I had to check in with this gentleman, and I knew his name was Coach Greska. That's all I knew. Yeah, Clem Greska. Uh, Coach Clem Greska. Yeah. And, you know, you you just took it as a habitual. Check in the gate, check out the gate. And then one day, a friend of mine who also worked in the athletic department said, do you know who that is? Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, it's Coach Greska. He goes, no, I'm asking you if you know who that is. Yeah. And I said, well, no. <laughs> and he said, that gentleman played for Coach Bryant, then coached for years under Coach Bryant, 
He only has fingers on one hand, but he was a tight end for Coach Bryant. (laughs) And then now he serves as a consultant within the athletic department, and he, Coach Sam Bailey, and Coach Dude Hennessy were Coach Bryant's three best friends. Yeah. I was like, wow. Yeah. That's a lot to swallow. Because I, growing up an Alabama fan, I mean, I idolize those people, right? right? Skip forward. Been doing that for about a year and a half. And one day, Coach Griska walks over behind me. I was shooting video, and I had no idea he was there. And how old old were you now? I would have been 19. Yeah, wow. And he throws what he refers to, so this is not derogatory, but he threw his nub up on my shoulder, and he whispers in my ear, and I'm still rolling video, and he said, Scott, when you get finished, will you come by and talk with me? And I said, yes, sir. So then you start wondering, what have I done wrong? Because right. he was the policing right. of what went on at practice. And so when I got done, I stopped by and talked to him. And uh, he said, Scott, he said, I noticed that you come out here every single day in the heat, perspire, shoot video, leave with the equipment after dragging it in. And then I see you come back and rinse and repeat. Mm-hmm. So what's your story? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I grew up in Elba, and he immediately associated that with Coach Mac Wood, who was the head coach at Elba for many years, and asked if I knew Coach Wood, and of course I did. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, what do you what do you want to do in school? And I said, well, I'm in communications. I'm not sure exactly yet what in that school I'm going to major in. And he said, well, I'll, I'll just get through the small talk. I need somebody that's a student to come work with me in the athletic department I've been kind of looking around to kind of find somebody who I felt like would have the work ethic but wouldn't be infatuated by the surroundings. Right. And I think you have both. Would you be interested in discussing it with me? And I said, well, yes, I would. He said, what time do you get out of class on Monday? Because this was a Thursday, I think. It doesn't really matter. But, And I told him, I said, I think I get out at 1 o'clock on Monday. He said, go home, change clothes. He said, you got a suit? Yes, sir, I do. Put on your suit, put on your tie, come up here to the football building, tell the lady out front you're here to see me. I go into his office and sit down, and he says, all right, glad you're here. Hang on just a minute. Okay, I didn't think anything odd about that. He walks back in, and he says, okay, Coach Stallings will see us now. How about that? I'm like, repeat that again? <laughs> he said, you knew that we were going to talk to Coach Stallings, right? I said, no, sir. I knew I was talking with you. He said, well, no, we're we're going to talk with Coach just a moment. So we go into Coach's office, and he's sitting over behind his desk, and he's got his glasses down on the end of his nose, and he's got uh, papers in front of him. He's got a remote control in his hand. And back then, the remote controls were corded. That's right. (laughs) And so he was kind of leaned up close to the TV, and uh, he goes, God, have a seat. He says, Clem tells me some things about you that he seems to like, and I'll just be honest with you. I don't have time to mess with you, but he says he'd like to have you work for us. What do you think about that? And I said, well, Coach, I would love to work for you. I said, we haven't really discussed what it would look like, hours, anything. He said, yeah, and I'm not going to discuss it with you now. Clem will. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir, it sounds good. He goes, thank you for coming in. And yeah. that was it. We yeah. left. Yes, sir. I think I'll take that. Yeah, man, that was a great offer. Yeah, and it and it was like we was talking about a minute ago. This is the not the beginning of the long line of men, but 
I look back on my life now, Jay, and where I am in my faith walk and where I am with the people that I know and that I associate with and that help form and shape me as a person. Right. That meeting, that encounter with that man not knowing, you know, they always say, be careful what you do because you never know who's watching. That's right. That's right. And I didn't know he was watching me. I didn't know he needed anybody. Now, I'm going to stop you there for just a second because sure. there's another story there that you you know, but then all that time in Elba working as a, as a farm boy in the heat, sweating, you know, that was a preparation time as well. So, yeah, you, you carried the cameras in the heat and did rinse and repeat, but that was no different. You're growing up every day, right? No, sir. We drug seine nets across catfish ponds. Um, I've been out in the 90-degree heat in the spring and summer picking okra with a flannel shirt on because those that have ever picked okra knows what happens if you pick okra and you get on a short sleeve shirt. It will cut you to death. Yeah. And so I'm not one of those people that had to walk uphill backwards, you know, right, in right, the right. snow. None of that, but... Um, I, I will say my my grandfather and my daddy um, had requirements of chores and responsibilities, yeah. and that helped help shape me for when I got there. And I wouldn't plan on going there, but I don't imagine at supper at nighttime when you just worked yourself to death. I don't think they all stood up and applauded, did they? Did they stand up and applaud? <laughs> I always, I kind of get you know. There's a there's a part of the work too that you're working, but there's there's intrinsic rewards of just you know you did your job well or you know uh, but there there's a that's there's a something about that in there that even what sports now now requires the work ethic you know to survive in life and it's just and there's nothing wrong with it, it just is what it is but it's it's not there like it used to be you know uh, interesting to me anyway well it, you you make a great point. As you know, the listeners may not know, but I have a 12-year-old son. Mm-hmm. And he's right now to that age of where he's beginning to formulate what his habits and work ethics are going to be. Yeah. We live in a different society now because he's not growing up in a farm area, small town. He's growing up in a subdivision. Yeah. But I make a point that we get out, and whether it's volunteer work or it's work we have to do, we do things and we do it together. Yeah. But I've we've been learning how you use a chainsaw and a weed eater and a lawnmower and these different things. And you know, Coach, one of the things that this is a personal opinion, but one of the things that I think is wrong in the way that we're rearing a lot of our kids today is that we're letting video games and access to the internet become the babysitters and the teachers, if you will, mm-hmm. instead of the experiences being the teacher. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Students that choose to be student athletes in the arena of competition, whether it's a football field, a baseball yeah. diamond, what have you, there's always a scoreboard. Yeah. So at the end of that game or match, there's always going to be a winner and there's always going to be someone who didn't win. I don't call it a winner and a loser, and the reason is, and this is one of those, if you hang around me very much, you'll hear a lot of Stallings-isms. Right, right. But Coach used to always tell us, 
There's never a loser, even if you don't win on the scoreboard, and here's why. You're going to learn things during the course of the game, whether you win or lose, but it's just a different set of circumstances. If you win, you have to learn to win with grace, being humble, um, being generous to your competitor. If you do not finish first on that scoreboard, so you did not win the competition, you know, you as the titan of competition have to then deal with what you guys had to deal with on Friday night, and that's the heartache of losing. But I tell you what, I would rather, I know me and I hope my son grows up to be the same way, I would rather see him experience that heartache that builds character and teaches him the rigors of being a competitor than to not enter the arena at all. Yeah. Because life, life is full of hard knocks, Coach, right? Yeah. Share a little bit more about now. We'll go back to that kind of – because that, you know, national championship, 92. I mean, you you kind of ran ran right into that thing as it was coming back. So it had to be pretty special. It was. Uh, the job that I was brought on to do was quality control. Hmm. And for those that – are football geeks uh, quality control back in the 90s when I worked for Coach Stallings was a pro football thing at the oh, time. Oh, yeah, because that's his background. It is. So he came from the National Football League with the St. Louis and Phoenix Cardinals, and they had a quality control department. Essentially, quality control in football, you know, it's the same thing it is in a corporation. You identify your weaknesses, and that's where you spend the most of your practice time, and you just polish on the things that you do well. Uh, skipping ahead on the story, I worked in recruiting. I worked for Randy under Coach Gerald Jack, who was Coach Stallings' uh, childhood friend. They yeah. played in the playpen together. But we went on to – I guess I should say this first. That first season in 1990, we started 0-3. Right. So we lost to Brett Favre in Southern Miss at Legion Field. Then we go to uh, Georgia – and get beaten pretty badly uh, in Athens, lose it in the fourth quarter. And then we come back home and lose to, lose to Steve Spurrier and the Florida Gators in Tuscaloosa on a block punt. My first year here, we're 0-3. The natives are restless. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of people that questioned whether Coach was too old for the job when he was hired. And I thought, you know what? This may be the shortest-lived <laughs> tenure in the history of Bama football. Yeah. But – um, Coach never, ever once wavered from – today we call it the process. That's what Coach Saban calls it. Right. Coach, Stall, I mean, Coach Stallings just always called it stick to the plan. Stick, to, stick the plan. to the plan. He goes, no matter what happens, keep your head down, stick to the plan. Right. Now, the year before we lost the bowl game badly. Yeah. This year we won it closely, but we still won it. That was a springboard. People always say, well, what, what changed between the years? And I'm like, no, no. If 91 hadn't happened the way it happened, 92 might not have ever happened the way it did. Yeah, 92 was a wonderful ride. It sure was. It was, um, you know, as as me and my A-Club brothers get older, the stories change a little bit. And now we like to tell how every single game we beat the daylights out of everybody. We had a couple very – as good as that team was – 
we had a couple very close calls. We La beat Tech. Le- La Tech. It, you're so <laughs> right. We beat La Tech at Legion Field 13-6. to It was a punt return by David Palmer that was yeah. the difference in the ball game. Um, and, our, and as coaches, some of our favorite times is having Chris Donnelly tell that whole story. And, of course, he's like you. He can talk just like Coach Stallings, you know. And amazing season, though, 92. It was. Um, we we started out not highly ranked. The expectations were uh, – for Alabama fans, they're always high. Right. But nationally in the media, the expectations were not that great. But when we got to about game seven and there had been a couple upsets in front of us, it began to sort of clear the trees a little bit that there was a path. It was narrow. But there was a path that we could possibly get to the first ever SEC championship game uh, at Legion Field in Birmingham. And if we could get by a very, very talented Gator team that – big things could happen. And so, as you probably well remember, talk about close games, talk about just oh, biting your goodness. fingernails. Yeah, yeah. If it were not for Antonio Langham yeah. picking off a uh, pass by uh, Matthew. uh, Shane Matthews yeah. from uh, Moss Point, Mississippi, yeah. Pascagoula, if, if he hadn't have telegraphed a pass that Antonio later says, I saw that. Yep. that little sit-down route many times on film. I knew when I saw 22, the wide receiver sit down, I knew where the ball was going, so he broke and took it to the house, and that was a difference in the game. And that's such a storied game. You have done, They've done documentaries and all because it, it could have messed up the national championship You know, had it gone the other way. Then the Miami uh, upset, uh, Brother Bill Oliver's game plans uh, against Gino Toretta. Uh, Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, talk a little bit about the preliminaries of that and what that was like. You know, uh, Coach Oliver, uh, Coach Brother Oliver, as a lot of people out there yeah. will know him, he, he is a unique personality. Um, he's not arrogant. He's not cocky. But he's a very confident man. Yeah. And I, 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 I remember that we sent um, – a GA, one of uh, a, a very good GA of ours named Chip. We sent him to watch Miami play San Diego State in San Diego as their last regular season game. And he came back home with a scouting report. And then we obviously by this time had gotten all of the videotapes. Mm-hmm. You know, it was and it was actually videotape back yep, then, folks. Yep. Um, but. I remember sitting in a room with Coach Oliver and Coach Oliver, and I, that's why the day Coach Oliver could tell me the sky's fixing to fall, and I believe it. We were sitting in a room, and he's like, "Guys, I'm gonna tell you." In his high pitched voice, he goes, "Guys, I'm gonna tell you, they can be beat. We have the team that can beat them." He goes, and we as coaches can come up with the plan. He goes, but here's what's got to happen. He goes, it will not be easy because they have athletes all over the field. Mm -hmm. They spread you out Mm -hmm. because they want to play in space. They want to play in gaps, and that's where they use that speed. But he goes, if we as coaches do a good job of teaching our kids, our student athletes, the plan, he goes, I am telling you, he goes, we can beat them. And he felt like, and he turned out to be right, 
He felt like if we go out there and mash them in the mouth for a while, he goes, they're not used to it. And he goes, I don't think they will react well. Interesting. And you know, Coach, that is exactly what happened. The game was still a close football game at the half. It was, yeah. But his first two passes of the second half were both picked. One of them was a pick six by George Teague. The other one was a pick by Tommy Johnson that he returned back deep down into their territory, and we eventually scored. That opened the game up. And at that point, I my vantage point is from the coach's box in the press box. I was a down-and-distance guy. Yeah. And so – but as I'm looking through binoculars and I'm looking across the field, I begin to see – chalkboard meetings going on on the sideline over there when I'm trying to identify personnel and I'm beginning to see hand gestures and arguing and stuff going on. And I I realized, I'm like, you know what? Coach Oliver knew exactly what he was talking about. If we can get them in a position that they're not used to because they had been beating everybody to death. Yeah. And they all of a sudden find themselves late in a game and trailing. Yeah. And they coach they didn't respond well. Now, what play was what part of the game did the famous strip fumble uh, happen? Because that was a huge. You know, had that play even been tackled there, they might have a little life. But that kind of just stole all their hope. <laughs> You're referring to when George Teague stripped Lamar Thomas. Yeah. So Lamar Thomas was a first team All America. Uh, first-team Big East back then wide receiver would later be a first-round draft pick into the NFL. And he breaks loose on a on a throw that Toretta put on the money. Um, Willie Gaston, if I remember, was the guy that was covering him. But George came across the field and came from behind. Uh, Lamar didn't know he was there. He takes the ball away from him, strips it from behind, manages to keep his feet, and I don't know, he returned it 10, 15 yards back up the field. It's the largest play that I've ever seen in my lifetime that was a play that was not a play recorded as a play. And what I mean by that, there was a flag on the play. And so the flag was thrown. Miami actually gets the ball back after the penalty was marked off on us. But that play, that effort that want to was represented throughout the whole game and our our sideline our players i mean even the people up there with me in the booth who rarely cheer there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation but it ain't cheering yeah and but they absolutely were just like i've never seen a play like that in my life and um i can listen i just saw george recently he was the uh Honorary master, uh, uh, what do you call it? Grand Marshal of the Homecoming Parade in Tuscaloosa a couple weeks ago. He is a fantastic guy. That's awesome. And we we reminisced a little bit about yeah. this right here. So yeah. what a, what a great young man. So take us now from that ninety two to being the voice of the Brown Lions. So, so, <laughs> how does that happen? <laughs> so Coach Stallings on a trip back from the Birmingham airport one night. He, uh, this is, I'm not going to build a clock to tell you what time it is, but I got to give you just a little bit of history. I, we're, we're driving back from Birmingham where a plane had landed and dropped us off. And I'm driving and he's sitting over there. Well, 
John Mark had recently had a his son. John Mark Stallings was Coach Stallings' son, um, who is now deceased. But um, Johnny, as those that knew him well called him, he had Down syndrome. Right. Was a fantastic young man. Was predicted not to live past five and lived to be in his late thirties. Um, but Johnny had recently had a doctor's appointment that didn't go the best. And it had a lot to do with his respiratory system and um, his breath and breathing. And as it turned out, with Tuscaloosa being at the foot of the Appalachian Mountain Range, it's a very humid city because of the jet stream. Oh, yeah. It's awful. They told Coach that John Mark would probably be better if he were in a drier air in Texas at the ranch in Paris would do that. So I knew from the conversation with him that Miss Ruth Ann and Johnny were spending a lot more time during the week. They'd come back in for games. They're spending a lot more time. But he tipped me off that night that I don't know how much longer I'm going to do this, Mm -hmm. um, but it let me know it was on his mind. So in the back of my mind, I started sort of preparing, okay, This man hires me as a student shooting football practice with a camera. I now find myself being a staff member on a Southeastern Conference Division I coaching staff. If he leaves, he's the only person in the world who knows who I am. Yeah. You know, where does that leave me? So I began to look where I wanted to go, and I exited when he did and went into the private sector. And as it turns out, Tyler Watts, who eventually would be an Alabama quarterback, his dad and my mom had been friends for many, many years because they worked with the same company for 30 years. So through some connections with him, I ended up going to work for him. How about that? And for he, Herman? For Herman Watts, yeah. Tyler's dad. Well, Herman was an officer in the Pelham Athletic Club where Tyler was currently playing at Pelham High. They needed somebody to do play-by-play on their television broadcast that they had. The person that had done it previously had stepped away. And so Herman came to me and said, hey, would you like to do this? Didn't you do some PA work? And I said, well, yeah, but PA work and play-by-play is a little different. And you had done that, right? I had. Yeah, because I, I don't think we've mentioned that before, but even when you were in Alabama, was it baseball some? I did, I did some baseball games. I did some women's basketball games, yeah, yes. Yeah. And then I did junior college baseball. I did several yeah, yeah. things along the way. Because communications. I am. Yeah. And, and as my wife says, I just love to talk. Yeah. <laughs> but um, – Anyway, I end up doing that, and so that sort of puts me on a television screen in front of, you know, some people here in the over the mountain area. Right. And so I started getting some calls about, hey, do you mind calling our basketball tournament at Christmas? Do you mind doing this, doing that? And so I started doing some of that, and we ended up, I ended up moving not long after that, and left for a few years. But my wife and I, um, we returned to Birmingham back in 2006 after we got married. And then we had our son in 2011. And then I became a dad, and I became a husband, and football and everything that went with it, purposely by me, yeah. got put on the back burner. And I missed it. And I would go sit at a high school football game, and I'd be like, golly, I love – I miss the X's and O's. I miss the sideline. Mm-hmm. I miss the smell of the fresh-cut grass. I don't – I'll never have the time again to do that. Right. 
But how can I be involved? That's where you end up getting an email from me. That's right. Yeah. And uh, at the time, uh, you had somebody in place that was doing the job for you, and you were happy with them. They were happy with you. And I certainly didn't want to interfere, but I, I think we sort of left it with, hey, if I ever need somebody, maybe I'll reach out to yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. And then I got the, the message from you back in the spring to reach out to you. And uh, not only am I getting to call games, which is a, a passion and a love for me, I have uh, benefited from so many things that go with that. We were talking before we were doing this podcast. Um, the most important thing is I get to do it with Noah. That Noah's right. my 12-year-old son. Yeah, He gets to see something now that Dad used to do before he came along in this world. And I don't know, maybe there's a chance that because of you, I'm not quite as nerdy as I used to be. <laughs> Because th- he's looked around like, You're a Dad, how do you how do you how do you know this stuff about football? How, how how can you tell how many yards he just got? And I'm like, Well, Noah, I used to do this quite a bit. Yeah. And so that's the first thing is I get to spend quality time with my son doing something that I used to love. But the other thing is, Coach, I have met so many Briarwood parents that I don't know. And they really don't know me other than somebody has pointed out that's the ugly, ball-headed guy right there that does the PA in the press box on Friday night. And they've just come by and said, hey, I appreciate what you're doing for our school. Thank you. Yeah. The coaching staff that you're a part of, mm. um, they have just continually just reached out to me and been like, hey, anything that we can do to help you, come be a part of us. Um, it has just been, i tell you what it is. It It's the Briarwood spirit. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. This yeah. is a special place. We have our son here for a reason. Yeah. People ask me all the time. I literally was asked this past week by someone said, I got a question. Why do you spend all that money on a private education? And I said, I don't. Hmm. And they looked at me kind of perplexed like, what do you mean? I said, I pay for a Christian education. Yeah, yeah. And after I tell people that, you can tell they kind of think for a minute and they're like, Oh, I never thought of it that way. I want my son to learn all of the academics that every other child does, but I want him to do it in the shadow that's cast by Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's when you and I finally met, you know, about coming on and doing the job. Um, You know, we can talk about all the Alabama connections, and those are fun and all, but there was a spiritual part of that that, was the center for me because you were talking about your spiritual journey. Uh, it's funny because a lot of times I'll tell families, don't come to Briarwood for athletic reasons. So that sounds weird, right? I mean, you're in recruiting. That's not something you normally say, right, in recruiting? Right. right. But I'll say, come here for everything. You know, the, the Bible class at the chapel, the academics, you know. If you're coming for those reasons – there's a chance this is going to be a really special thing for you. But if you're coming for that, and so I felt like that's, you know, but you, the thing I like about your faith journey is sometimes people think you just kind of just grow up and you're just, you know, been, uh, you know, Christian, you know, nine months before you're even born. But but there was a real journey you had that was, makes you understand God's grace. There so. was. I grew up in a home with parents that believed in Jesus. And we went to Sunday school and church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when I was 12 years old, the same age as my son is now, I was baptized. All I got was wet. Um, and so I went off to college and then later got the job at Alabama and I'm flying on planes and traveling in cars and everything else all over the place. Unfortunately, God was disconnected from that. Um, God was still knocking on my door. He was still loving on me, but I wasn't answering. One of the things that I don't miss about college-level coaching is that a lot of meetings and a lot of preparation for the next week takes place on Sunday. So I found myself getting up on Sunday morning, going to the office, doing stuff there, and wasn't going to church, and I wasn't connected to a body of believers. Um, When I left the college coaching world and went back into the private sector, I began to realize something was missing in my life. So I would be, see people around me that were happy. I would see people around me that were content. I would see people that didn't have, weren't as quick triggered as I was. And so I had a, had a moment in my life where I'll never forget where I was, what I was doing, what, what was going on. I remember that night it was pouring down rain. There was a thunderstorm going on. All of that doesn't matter, except I remember the moment like it was five minutes ago. And I had a talk with the Lord. Hmm. And I said, look, Jesus, up until now, I believe you exist. I believe you died on a cross. I believe you died for my sins. But what I don't have is I don't have an intimate relationship with you. I don't talk to you every day. I don't talk to you every week. I might not talk to you every month. I need that. I want that. And so I began to reconnect. And at that same time, and I think this was all part of God's plan, I was living in Birmingham. I was living in Hoover. And a job opportunity came up that moved me to Dothan, which is where my parents live. Mm -hmm. I moved to Dothan and hadn't lived in Dothan very long. I was going to the church, Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Dothan, where my parents went. And I meet this wonderful young lady who had been on mission trips to Kazakhstan. Mm. She had done beach retreats where you just go to the beach and you work as a maid in the hotels during the day. And then on your off time, you're out talking about Jesus on the beach to people. She knew the word. Mm. She had the relationship that I wanted. I met her. At the time, I just called her a friend. Now I call her wife. And so she deserves so much credit there's one thing i that i would um be really guilty of if i didn't say since we're on this subject going back to coach stallings um been married to my wife now for 17 years and so for 17 years she has heard on a daily basis some football analogy (laughs) she has heard something about what coach stallings says or coach stallings thinks Five years ago, she finally got to meet Coach Stallings for the first time. Oh, wow. We got to spend a weekend with him, and she got to have some one-on-one, well, be present for some one-on-one conversations with me and him. She looked at me after that weekend, and she's like, I finally get you. Yeah, yeah. She goes, you used to always talk about the brotherhood, the group, the love, the letterman, the coaches. 
But she got to see grown men that weekend <clears throat> cry when talking about Coach. Yeah, yeah. Coach is sitting there, yeah. and we're giving sort of a – we're supposed to be roasting him, but it's hard to roast Coach because there's so many good things to say about him. Yeah. But she walked away from that weekend, and she said, you know, I finally get it. And I said, Kara, I love my daddy and love my granddaddy, the two strongest male figures in my life growing up. I said, but then when I met Clem Griska – and he then connected me to Coach Stallings. And I worked directly under Randy Ross, who is another strong faith yeah. believer. Yeah. I said, those those are the people that shaped the person that you know me as. I said, you know, I hadn't always been the Scott that you met because I didn't meet her till I was in my 30s. Right. And I said, so they helped shape me. But everybody sees Gene Stallings as the hard barking, stone-faced coach that is usually yelling at somebody, player, referee, or coach on the sideline. Yeah, he was. <laughs> there, <laughs> he was. And if he were here right now, he'd go guilty, guilty. But there is a side to him that not everybody gets right. to see. Yeah. And it's a side where he would put his arm around me and he'd go, all right, this is what you need to do. Yeah, yeah. Or this is what you don't need to do. Yeah. And we even had this is a funnyism, and I'll cl- I'll close with this unless you have something else to ask. But that weekend we're together. <clears throat> he and my son Noah, and Noah at the time would have been seven. I introduced Noah to him, and no, and I told Noah who he was. I look around, and there's all these people wanting to meet Coach and take pictures with Coach and hang with Coach. And I noticed that Noah is left me and mommy, and he is now following Coach around everywhere. And Coach kind of had – Coach was egging it on because he would kind of do that thing where he had to move over here. He put his arm around Noah's back. Come on. Yeah. And they'd walk over here. So finally I walked over and I said, hey, Noah, Noah, come here, come here. And so Noah came over and I was explaining to him. I said, you need to come with me and Mommy because Coach has something that he needs to do. He needs to talk to these people. About that time, Coach looks over at me. He goes, Scott. I said, yes, sir. He goes, is there a problem? <laughs> I said, uh, no, sir. I said, I was just explaining. And no, he goes, me and Noah got this under control. He goes, you can go back over there where you were. He goes, we're fine. And I said, coach, I don't work for you anymore. He said, Scott, you'll always work for me. <laughs> Your voice is becoming very familiar to us, but your addition to Briarwood is going to have uh, just – a great impact and so i'm so thankful that you're doing what you're doing you're doing a great job uh man it's exciting football at Broward on friday night so you're you're calling some good games but i love seeing your organization your call sheets and all so you're just you're doing such a wonderful job so thank you for all you're doing thank you uh thank you for having me here today number one but thank you for the opportunity of letting me be involved great at Briarwood Christian School in Birmingham, Alabama. And each episode of this podcast is dedicated to our coaches, volunteers, and other staff members who help us wrestle with what it means to be a Christian, competitive athletics program in contemporary society. Thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of AD Update.